Good morning. Today's reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethesda, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found of him who we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The word of the Lord. Come and see. That's the great refrain that we hear in our passage. But, but for me personally, it actually has a different connotation. Um, when I hear that phrase, it, it stirs in my own mind because of reasons I'll go on to explain. Uh, memories of the summer of 2007. I had just finished my uh, junior year. That's what they call if you're in a three-year MDiv program. Your first year is called your junior year. Uh, This is the more you know type of a situation. And your second year is called middler year, and then you're a senior. So it has its own distinctive, uh, you know, name for the different years. So I just finished my junior year uh, for pursuing my MDiv at PTS, and I had my first ever field education experience. Uh, I was the intern for outreach and domestic missions at Christ Presbyterian Church in lovely Edina, Minnesota. And so it was really a a -a one-of-a-kind experience. Um, You know, I grew up in a church where at its peak when I was growing up, attendance was 150 people. And here I was at, you know, Christ Presbyterian Church where it's 10 times that people, many people on a Sunday. And I was given a project to work on, though. It was called Come 
and see. That was the name of my internship project, the main thing I was going to be working on that summer. And, and it was going to be this website that we were making uh, to collect stories from the congregation of people and their experiences of walking with Jesus. And so it, it was an outreach tool uh, because whoever, you know, had any sort of interest or inclination could, could come to this website, come and see, and uh, they could hear the testimonies, see the testimonies from these members of Christ Presbyterian Church of CPC. Now, uh, needless to say, the only evidence that exists of this project is a folder I have buried somewhere down in my, my basement. It, it never really got off the ground, and, and I think, honestly, it was kind of pretextual. Like, this was just an excuse. you got to have something for the intern to work on or to justify it. And so uh, I think it was just the pretext to take on a seminary intern, which they hadn't done, actually, at CPC in, in forever. Like, no one could remember the last seminary intern. And so I'm eternally grateful that they just sort of made up some kind of work for me to do so that they could bring me on board and give me the experience of just getting to be around there and get to know the people and, and, and serve in the various capacities that I ended up doing. So the website was kind of like the excuse that opened the door to all of these other different ministry experiences in, in a ministry setting, in context that was very different from what I had been in before or have been in since. Now come and see this passage. It, it's Jesus' what we might call his evangelistic strategy for creating and, and building and extending his church. We see it happening in, in three different spheres in our passage this morning. There's the, the preacher evangelism of John. There's the, French, the, the, the family evangelism of Andrew and uh, the friendship evangelism of Philip. And I'm taking this framework. In fact, I'm stealing it directly, but I'm giving credit. So now I cited my sources, so you can't say it's stealing. But I'm stealing it from one of my favorite New Testament commentators, uh, Dale Bruner. And, and Dale is this guy, he... Uh, he, he got his um, degree from Princeton Seminary, and then he went and taught uh, New Testament in the Philippines, and then taught at Whitworth College, and ended up teaching at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena. And uh, he's just this very unique figure in, in that he served in all these different realms. Uh, and he taught a Sunday school class for years and years and years at, um, at First Presbyterian Church of, of Hollywood. And so he has this experience teaching Scripture cross-culturally um, and teaching it to just your regular average churchgoer and to undergraduates and to seminary students. And so to me, he's just a unique person in the way that he can fuse the, the sort of the, the scholarship and discipleship in one. And, and he wrote a masterful commentary on Matthew, really one of the best. Then he followed that up with John, and he wrote one on Romans. But he, to me, just, he, he, bring, he brings it home. There's a saying with preachers, right? You want to put the, the cookies low enough on the shelf where people can get to them. You don't want to leave them up too high. Um, and, and I don't think that's just, you know, being condescending to the congregation. But, but Bruner just has this incredible ability to, to give you all the insight you'd want into the scholarship, but then bring it home to the reality of, of what Scripture is saying in terms of discipleship. And so he says this, he frames it this way, saying this is really Jesus' evangelistic strategy for his church then and now. Because in the beginning of John, like all of the other Gospels, they, they kind of start this way. And, and they have to answer this question that's vital, it's important, it's implicit really, and it's often overlooked, is, is how did this thing that became the Christian movement, how did it actually get its start? You know, how did it go from one guy to lots of people? That's, that, that's really, like, 
you cannot overlook uh, how important it is to actually come to some sort of understanding on that. You know, it, it's one thing, like anyone can be just a preacher standing on a corner, right? All that takes is some chutzpah and uh, a loud voice and maybe a soapbox, right? And, 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 and you can be a preacher proclaiming a religious message or any sort of message on a corner, but you don't ever actually have to go beyond that. And I'd probably say that most people who do that, engage in that activity, don't ever go beyond that. But to start a movement, you, you have to be a teacher and you have to be a leader. And teachers need students and leaders need followers. Otherwise, you're just one dude. And so how did Jesus get these followers? How did he go from one person really standing in, in, in the shadow of John the Baptist to to someone who surpasses him? What was his, his strategy, his evangelistic strategy, and what can we learn from him? And so I think there's much, much to learn about how, you know, how things got started also teaches us how we can keep them going. Now, just a word about a word here. Uh, evangelism simply means sharing the good news. Uh, you know, it's last, less salutary cousin. Sometimes people treat this word like a dirty word proselytization, which is a, it's a difficult word to say, but it's kind of this ugly word, right? That, that you're, you're trying, this very idea can seem ugly to people. You're trying to convert people from one religion to another. And, and, and for some folks, even the very notion of that is offensive. And I think sometimes with good reason. If you've ever had a Jehovah's Witness come knocking at your door or, you know, you, I went to the U so we would see. The, I mean, they were very nice kids, the Mormon kids on the bikes and stuff like that, you know? Like, you just sort of are like, hey, can you just leave me alone? There's an aspect of, of proselytization that's like, uh, you know, seen as sort of bad manners because folks aren't just kind of minding their own business. But I will say that we've all, we all engage in proselytization to some degree or another, right? All of us are trying to, to, to convert people uh, to our worldview. It happens all the time. If you've ever participated in a, in a campaign for a politician or done advocacy around an issue, that's evangelism. That's proselytization. Uh, you know, I, I, I think of uh, COVID. So much of the discourse around COVID has even been like people trying to convert other people to their particular way of understanding the pandemic and the best way to respond to it. And so much of the frustration uh, that people have is they, that these people just cannot see the light. No matter the evidence that gets marshaled. And you know I'm like the most vaccinated person in the world, literally. Um, <laughs> literally. But like that, that, that so much of what's happening you see is the discourse around how do we convert people. And, and if you can't woo or win, how do you force people to be converted? So we're all evangelists. We're all proselytizers for something or another. That, 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 that's not the issue. It's, it's not the what, it's the how right? And so I think that when we do it the way we see here in John 1, when it comes to our Christian faith, we're going to be on solid footing, seeing how we're doing things the right way. And so, so the first strategy that we see with, with in terms of how Jesus creates the church, how God intends to do it, it, is through preacher evangelism. John the Baptist gives a sermon, a very brief sermon, and causes some of his followers to become followers of Jesus. And in the beginning of, of John 1, already to this point, John's been talking quite a bit about someone who's coming after him, who's going to be even greater than him, who's going to surpass him. You know, John is saying, I am the opening act. 
and the headliner is coming. And Jesus is the headliner. And he says here for the second time, uh, first time in our passage, but, but second time in John chapter 1, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. That's his sermon. And the gist of his sermon is, first of all, to point people to Jesus. That's what Matt was talking about last week when he's talking about John. He's saying that, 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 that a role of Christian is to point people not to ourselves, not talk about how great our own kind of ministry setting is, but we're pointing people to Jesus. That's what a, a good evangelistic sermon or effort does. It, it points people to Jesus. And he doesn't say that the content of his sermon, he doesn't say, Behold the Messiah. Or behold the King of kings and Lord of lords. Or behold the logos. He says, behold the Lamb of God. That's a phrase that's unique to this gospel. But it it fits with what we see elsewhere in the New Testament. I think especially of Paul where he says, you know, he's writing in his letters. He's saying, you know, I endeavored to to preach nothing but, but Christ and him crucified. And so the cross, even, even here in this first sermon, the cross, sacrifice substitution, right? It's at the heart of the good news. Because Christianity, from its very beginning, its inception, it's not a self-improvement program. Self-improvement is bad. It's good to improve yourself. But that's not the heart of what Christianity is. It's not a set of secret knowledge or esoteric philosophy. From the jump, Christianity is about Christ and what he's done for us primarily. And so as preachers, it's my job, it's Matt's job, whoever else gets up here in this pulpit 52 weeks a year, to evangelize, to point to Jesus, say to everyone here, behold the Lamb. Because everybody, the truth is, everybody needs the gospel. Everybody needs good, good news, especially Christians. It's our job to point people to Jesus because we're not trying to win members of this church. People who say, wow, aren't we so great? Aren't we so awesome? That's not what we're trying to do at all. We're trying to get people to encounter Jesus so that they can become his faithful disciples. And you know, the thing about preacher evangelism, I guess, I think one of the reasons that God uses it is, is that like John, you just have a natural platform when you're in the context of being a preacher. Like, there's an expectation that you will speak and people will listen. So it's already kind of baked in to the cake. And like John, we have some kind of theological language to put around Jesus to help people understand the significance of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so preacher evangelism is, you know, one of, if not the primary strategy for building the Christian movement. And so the sermon that John gives, it it prompts John's disciples to leave him and to follow Jesus. That's always discipleship language when we read that in in Scripture, this, this language of following, of going after. And what I love is that when this happens, we're told that Jesus notices them. He turns aside and he looks at them. And he asks a question. And there's some beautiful parallelism here. In the the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible, uh, which begins with these words, in the beginning, God's first conversation with Adam and Eve starts with a question. Where are you? Here in John, which also starts in the beginning, Jesus' first conversation with these would-be disciples starts with a question. 
What are you seeking? Other translations have it, what are you looking for? And that's a question that really ought to stop us dead in our tracks. What, what are you looking for? Because I, I feel like that's really the question that we need to ask ourselves. What are we looking for? What is it that we really, really want? And as we enter into a new year, I think that's a great question to, to frame at the beginning of the new year, is to ask ourselves, what, what, what am I looking for right now? What do I want out of life? Is it better relationships? Is it forgiveness? Is it healing? Is it friendships? Community? Uh, to make a difference? To just make it through? Health? Prosperity? Rest? Recreation? A relationship? Children? What, what is it? What am I looking for? And so Jesus asked us when we come to him, just ask us this question. What do you seek? And that can be a hard question to face. I think one of the reasons for this is behind that question. When we really honestly answer that question, what we're looking for, there's sometimes a looming fear in us. What if I can't get it? That fear of disappointment. And so just think about that question just for a moment right now. What do I really, really want, desire in this moment, deep down? What is it that you're looking for? Now, the answer that Jesus is given to this question, maybe it strikes us as a bit of a non sequitur. So what are you seeking? What are you looking for? Wow, okay. Rabbi, where are you staying? So Jesus asks this question that, that kind of gets at the meaning of life. And their answer is that they're looking for an address. Is that really what they're looking for? Like just to know where Jesus is staying while he's in town? Now that word they use here, you can tell us where you're staying. Uh, in other places in John, it, it's translated as abiding. And it gets translated that way, I think, because it's sort of a more profound word, right? Staying is just a basic word. Abiding seems like it means a little something else. Where are you abiding? And Jesus, later in John, he's going to spend a lot of time talking about those who abide in him, those who stay in him, uh, having eternal life. And so, as is often the case, the disciples, they might just be asking more than they know or more than they understand. To abide in Christ to stay with him. You know, in John, that is the ultimate goal. And so what Jesus understands about their reply to his question, though, is they say, you know, could you tell us where you're staying? And Jesus knows that what these two need is not more information. What they need is a relationship and an apprenticeship. Jesus could answer the question, where are you staying? Well, I... Staying at the J.W. Marriott uh, downtown. That's the type of answer you give when, when, when you think someone just needs simple information. But Jesus' answer is this. Where, you, where are you staying? Come and you will see. And I think truly, you know, there's all types of information out there in the world about Jesus. And I'm, information is great. I, I, I love information. I, I'm not against it at all. 
But, you know, you can read a book to learn, or you can listen to a podcast, you can watch some YouTube videos, you know, go on a Reddit thread, read a Wikipedia article. You can learn all you want about Christianity and Jesus. You can get all that information you need from those sources. Plenty of information out there about Christianity. But there's no substitute when it comes to, to, to establishing the Christian movement, to staying with Jesus, spending time with him in his word, prayer, worship, serving the people he cares about. So evangelism, is, it's a message about Jesus, but it's also an invitation to walk with him yourself, to, to take steps of faithfulness. So that's the preacher evangelism strategy. But, but, but then it quickly pivots to family evangelism. Andrew tells his brother, uh, Simon, Simon, Simon Peter, uh, and, and brings him to Jesus. Simple as. And we know what kind of an evangelist Andrew is. You know, he, he, he tells his brother something that, you know, he says, we found the Messiah. He shares this, this message, this discovery. He shares it with him. And he doesn't just tell him this. He brings his brother to Jesus. He's willing to accompany him on that journey. He doesn't just say, wow, we found him. You need to go find him too. He goes with him. He accompanies him. And he's also humble in that, you know, Andrew is the one who introduces Simon Peter to Jesus. But there's never a hint of, of bitterness for what will come later. That, that Simon Peter, obviously, he becomes the leader of the disciples. Part of Jesus' inner circle. That's not Andrew's role. But there's no record of Andrew complaining or of him being resentful, saying, I, I, I followed him first. Or you only met him because of me. Andrew, like John the Baptist, is willing to take a back seat. And so, you know, what, what, what starts with, you know, preacher evangelism just continues to the next natural way that, that, that family evangelism, you know, Telling the people who are part of your inner circle, the people who, who you live with, the people who you are related to, sharing, you know, this message with, with whatever shared religious vocabulary you have and bringing someone along. And the wonderful thing is that people are actually incredibly open to be invi- being invited to things, even to church. The problem is we're really good at saying no for people uh, before we even ask them, uh, for ourselves. You know, we, and I get that. We want to protect ourselves. We don't want to be pushy. We don't want to be bothersome. Uh, we don't want things to get weird or uncomfortable. But also, <laughs> what Andrew understands is that meeting Jesus is the best thing that can happen to someone. And, and almost everyone is flattered by an invitation, even if they don't take it up. How many of us are mad that we got invited to things, even if we say No. So there's preacher evangelism, there's family evangelism, and finally, friendship evangelism. And this is Philip telling his friend Nathaniel that Jesus is the one we've been looking for. And Nathaniel's response, I love it, it's one of merited skepticism. Nathaniel, you know, he knew his Bible. His mental concordance was set. You know, and if you, you can do this now, go Bible Gateway, type in Nazareth into the search bar. How many results are you going to see from the Old Testament that contain the word Nazareth? Zero. There ain't no Nazareth in there. So he's saying, you're telling me you found this one that, that, that the, the law of Moses and the prophets are talking about. Jesus, uh, son of Joseph, from Nazareth. 
what is coming out of Nazareth. Like, that has nothing to do with Nazareth. In fact, Nazareth was nowheresville, a podunk town, hardly even a town at this point in time. And so we understand Nathaniel's skepticism. We appreciate that skepticism. You know, he knew the Messiah was supposed to come from David's city, from Bethlehem, and David's line. Nazareth has nothing to do with anything of that. And so he's right to be skeptical regarding these claims. But Philip doesn't let his friend's skepticism stymie him. He simply says, come and see. And so here we see one of Jesus' first disciples picking up the characteristics of the master. Jesus had said, come and see to those first disciples, including Andrew. And, and, And here we see Philip saying to Nathaniel that same thing, picking up that pattern, come and see. And Nathaniel comes, and Jesus greets him, not with, you know, condemnation for his honest questions, but he salutes him. He says, here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. In other translations, older ones say, you know, there's no guile in whom there is no guile. I love that. Like, this is just an honest broker. Nathaniel, you're, you're a straight shooter. And so the message is clear here. That good faith skeptics are always welcome. Nathaniel wants answers to his questions, and, and, and Jesus has them. Now, Nathaniel's blown away because he's never you know, met, met Jesus in person. He says, how, well, how can you say, you know, I have no guile, I'm a true Israelite. And Jesus is like, I saw you. you know, before I even met you, I saw you under that, that fig tree. And so, you know, whatever Nathaniel was doing there under that fig tree, this was enough of an example of, of foreknowledge or, or insight to convince him that Jesus was who Philip said he was. But Jesus essentially says to him after that, you haven't seen anything yet. He says, you know, you will see the angels of God ascending and descending. I mean, that, that throws back to a passage that we actually studied this fall of Jacob, uh, you know, Jacob's ladder, Jacob's vision that he sees. And so Jesus' message is that, you know, Nathaniel, when you encounter me, you are encountering one of those thin places where heaven and earth meet. Now, I'd end here by just summarizing what I've said, that, that, that the message of this passage is that when it comes to you know, creating, establishing, extending the Christian movement, the key is to, to point people to Jesus and to get people to him, to bring people to him, to have them come and see for themselves Because Jesus is so compelling, even his critics have to admire him. And we know, I think anyone who considers themselves a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you know, what is it that that made us a Christian? It's the figure of Jesus himself. He is overwhelmingly compelling in the picture of God that he offers and the way of living and moving and being in this world that he presents to us. There's just nothing like it anywhere else. And so people need to see that and they need to encounter that and they need to experience that for themselves. And so we do that. Get people to Jesus, we get out of the way and we trust that through that encounter, God is going to do his work. It's not our responsibility. And so this year, I want to invite you all, come and see for yourself in a new way, the Lamb of God. And ask yourself, what is it that I'm truly seeking, that I'm truly looking for? And how that can actually 
be found in him. And how can you invite someone else on that journey? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.